Are you curious about bodies, pleasure, and possibilities? And what about curious about what others are up to on the planet when it comes to pleasure, sex, and play? Have you considered what pleasure can do for your life, your body, and your bank account? Do you know something magical, delightful, and out of this world orgasmic is not only possible for you, but totally available to you? If you're ready to be the magical, sexual, sexy beast you know you can be, and you just need the tools to get there, you're in the right place. Now, here's the host of The Pleasure Zone, sensual movement artist, relationship and sex alchemist, Milica Yelenich. Welcome, 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 my sweet pleasure seekers. Today we have a guest. I'm going to get to that in just a second. I'm just curious uh, for all of those of you who are listening out there, what part of the world are you listening from? Where are you? What's going on in your area of the world right now? I know that um, a lot of you, because it's 2020 and you're on planet Earth, you're experiencing some form of uh, restrictions due to a pandemic. But aside from that, there are other restrictions that have gone on in the world due to cultures. And a lot of cultures vary with what's acceptable and not acceptable in terms of uh, pleasure and different pleasure perspectives and what we can and can't do and culturally or religiously what's allowed. And I'm so curious about the different perspectives of people, the cultures that I have not lived in that I may have only read about, but that's secondhand information. So I'm really pleased today to be able to actually have a conversation with somebody who's lived in a culture that can give us information from her experience and perspective um, of the culture. And because she's such a dynamic mofo, she also has a desire to break free from a lot of the cultural norms that she's been raised with. And um, she's hugely a huge advocate for, um, as she calls herself, I think I think you called yourself a human centric. Yeah, yeah. she's she's very human centric. So it's a very all inclusive kind of show. So today I'll be speaking with my guest Farah, who is an MA student at Oise and a consultant uh, with uh, consultant program designer for high education in the realm of international development. She currently serves as an equity officer for the Graduate Union of UFT and is a curious South Asian exploring sensuality, sexuality, and shame. Hmm, how do those go together, right? <laughs> with South, South Asian, why is that such a tongue twister for me? South Asian, I'm gonna get that out of my mouth and be able to say South and Mouse today. <laughs> Asian exploring, uh, yeah, so we're gonna be exploring uh, these different topics of sensuality, sexuality, and shame. And also with women uh, in different things like biracial relationships, whatever that may mean to you, you may have some different perspectives on what that means. So we're going to look at what is that? Um, how does that maybe affect relationships? How does that affect conversation around sex and sexuality and sensuality? So I know this is kind of different because we usually have topics that are very much like, hey, this is how you give a blowjob or this is what we do. Um, but, you know, aside from those things around talking about these are the how to's in the universe, we also have a lot of conversation to be had when it comes to uh, the different cultures and how the different cultures are affecting some of our how-tos, things we've never learned, things we just don't know because those conversations are not had. 
And so Farah, I'm just curious, uh, like what was it that when I offered for you to come on the show that had you have like a spark of hell yeah, I'm gonna do that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, there was three, I think the main things that really put this in movement. And before I get into them, I just wanna say thank you for having me because I'm so stoked to be here and talk to you and explore through this conversation. Uh, the first was just upon reflection, like thinking of the women in my life, predominantly my mom and my grandmother. And, you know, we never really had conversations around sex, but my mom read a lot of erotica. And I remember walking in on my grandmother, like watching porn or, um, you know, looking at, at other things that were quite sensual. And so part of it was a curiosity of, oh, what does this look like intergenerationally? Like I grew up in a nuclear home, my grandmother, my mother, what does it look like there? Um, but also like how does that translate to children then who you know kind of see it but don't really have conversations about it in the home the other was I happen to be in a really fantastic relationship where my boyfriend is incredibly open-minded and open to exploring things around sensuality but also how exploration through sex can actually be quite healing for those that have experienced sexual trauma um, and the third is I think just through reflecting on my mother and my grandmother's life I've been getting into erotica a lot recently like reading my own books and finding really cool literature and studies that it just seemed like a really it just sounded like the universe really wanted me to really talk about this and explore it and lo and behold it blew me right into your direction so that's kind of I what the that. foundation was for that what I love is that especially that like you knew that your grandmother watched porn. I yeah. love that. Yeah, You've me mentioned too. it to me before. And I think that's freaking awesome. I yeah. personally, I can't even fathom my grandmother watching porn. <laughs> she was very, she was very wasp and like mm. tea time. And she did all of, she was like the ultimate colonial. Like she did everything <laughs> the way the queen would do it. Yes. And not a lot of creativity around her daily life. So mm. to, to even think that my grandmother would have, like enjoyed sex is kind of strange to me because uh she she was so rigid in so many ways that I, it's hard for me to imagine that and then I had this other grandmother who was like a village woman who was like a village woman European woman who just she had the babushka and she looked like a little old granny but she was like a sex fiend yes. um, and the wild thing about this sex fiend from you know uh at the time it was like communist uh yugoslavia this mm. sex fiend woman uh growing up in in this age she like happened to find a husband who would accommodate her whims and i only found out probably in the last five or so years that my grandmother who i'm named after by the way Amazing. was a bit of a little sexy goddess sex fiend of course and she was super religious which is funny because you mentioned that about your grandma too like your grandma yeah. was very dedicated to her her beliefs yet she yes. has this side of her that is like there's no denying the sensual sexual part and I think that's beautiful because so many cultures and religions won't allow those two things to mix you're yeah. either sexual or you're spiritual but you're not both correct 100 percent so I'd love to hear more about like, like when you found out about your grandma, like what was your, like, what was your sort of reaction to that? 
I was super young when it happened and we used to share rooms. It was one of those things that like it was 8.30, she's winding down, watching her programs. I was downstairs doing something and I'd come into the room and she like quickly changed the channel. And I actually didn't recall it until I was reflecting this year about my grandmother and my mom. So my reaction was one, like I giggled because it was so funny because it was kind of like catching a young kid watching porn that they were like super shy about it and they changed the channel. But I thought there was so much empowerment in it that I'm like, oh, this is a woman who is a woman of faith, has raised countless grandchildren, has lived without her own husband for more than 30 years and was still finding ways to feel sexy and like sit in, sit in that power. And that for me was always something I thought was super, super cool. That oh, she, that yeah, is... that she just did it. I love that. <laughs> that is just so cool. And, you know, to be a pleasure diva at all yeah. ages I think all, is amazing yes absolutely I love that like because there is so much ageism around that as well and like aside from cultural uh differences there's a lot of ageism around sex so there's a lot of people who think like after 60 like who does it and oh, it's gross like there's it's interesting to me how that occurs but that's a whole other conversation I I was just yeah. curious <laughs> about like like did you like walk in and your grandma was mid-orgasm like what was going on <laughs> Now that would be interesting. That would have been that would have been interesting. I think she would have been mortified, poor woman, if if that yeah. had happened. But it was, I think, to to your point, like one of the things that I've been thinking of as well. And I just spoke to my boyfriend about this before. Is like I thought about South Asian representation in porn as an example, or even in like passion films, and how much they are underrepresented because of other stigmas. What will the community say? What, what does the faith say about this X, Y, and Z? But outside of that, I think that there's also when when you kind of get rid of the the outside noise and just li listen to self of what works. When I was thinking of porn, I thought like, oh yeah, maybe Indians or South Asians are underrepresented in porn. But porn has a bunch of categories. So like age as a category, body shape as a category, and in many ways, I think it's creating space that like women's magazines and women literature doesn't. Like every time I look at a Cosmo or Vanity Fair, it's how to look great or how to make your man orgasm or how to lose that last 10 pounds. Whereas like porn doesn't really tell you to do that. Porn is just like, here are people that want to explore and do what they're doing. Um, and so that's been something that I've been also thinking of as well, that like, I wonder if South Asians were represented in the culture. And what I mean by that is like porn and other avenues of sensuality and curiosity, would there be less shame and would there be more empowerment around having these conversations? Wouldn't that be cool? More representation. I know. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> it's it's a funny thing because as you say it, I just want to say what comes up in my mind, uh, and it may be a judgment, but the first thing that comes up in my mind is um, like, in some ways, I almost feel like happy for you that there that there isn't that influence in a way mm -hmm. because to me, it's like a lot of the porn that's out there is not necessarily kind. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like, how lucky did you guys get not to be? In, in, in this industry that's like so degrading and demeaning to so yeah. many people it would it would be amazing to see it be an empower like more empowerment in pornography I think it's starting to change and, and I remember so about five years ago I was approached by a uh, Chinese porn producer to ask if I wanted to star in a role to um, be like the dominatrix teacher um, so I brought it up to my husband and oh, he's cool. like, I don't, sweetheart, I don't think they're going to actually pay you what they say they're going to pay you. But if you want to try and follow through on it, you can, mm. but there, you have to get that. Yes, you're awesome. But at the same time, 
there are so many people out there that they can hire that they're not going to give you what what they're telling you they're going to give you and I was sure. like okay well that was good advice he wasn't like no what the hell he yeah. was just like okay you got to be realistic about the offer because this offer doesn't seem mm. <laughs> seem real um and I thought it was interesting to me that that the whole thing was actually geared towards uh, the Chinese there's a uh, certain market in the Chinese porn industry that's looking for white women and I'm like but oh. why why is it that it's like why why are you thinking that we have something that you don't have hmm. so that was my question I'm like well can't can you not find an Asian woman that can also be in the position of dominatrix and look hmm. empowered but maybe that is not a role that is being given to women um Asian South Asian women in pornography at all maybe I don't know I don't watch enough porn to know frankly so I couldn't mm. tell you I think it's also perceptions of beauty a lot of cultures perceive if you're lighter skin if you look in a particular way eye color hair color skin color it's often I would argue that there is a positionality in terms of privilege and power that come with that and I think part of it is there, there there's an allure it's kind of like a reverse orientalism situation right where it's like oh, the, the Orient is now fascinated with the other and the other is people who don't look and sound like you. So I, I, don't, I don't find it shocking that, that, that that's what happened. But I, I do think it's interesting that often solutions don't come from in-country. It's often outsourced. I see it in international yeah. development all the time. People are, they don't ask their people what the solution is. They will go to the West, quote unquote, and say, what are you guys doing? And how can we curate that to work in, in our arena? When the reality is, a lot of the times it doesn't work. That policy borrowing, the program policy does, doesn't work. And I, I'm seeing the same thing in my conversations around sex that like, why is there less of those conversations happening within communities? Mm -hmm. Because really it's, it's, I think, scrapping people of their autonomy and their agency to have the ability to not only talk about it, but to share and to strengthen communication around what their desires are. And so I wonder what what that might look like if there was a bit more freedom and a bit less shame around talking about how to strengthen relationships. I think that would be great. So, <laughs> so where do we start with that? Like, what's your awareness? Where do we start with that conversation? Are we starting it today? Like, where do we start <laughs> that conversation? <laughs> well, I think, well, I think I, I would pass it back to you and say, like, what what comes to mind as someone who's not in the space that you think would be so, in place? So the funny thing is from not being in the space of pornography, we'll say yes. my advice to actually to the, the producer was I said, I'd be willing to come on and consult and actually create pornography that's that mm, is right. has value mm. where the people have energy behind their bodies because most of the stuff I don't watch it because it's like dead. Mm. It's like blah, blah, blah. And there's like body slapping, but there's no. I can't feel it. Mm. So I have to say, though, I was watching. um like I love Outlander and I was yeah. watching Outlander and, and like the sex scenes be, between um, Jamie and I can't remember her name. Um, there, there's like a season two, I think, or three, they're having sex at some point. And I looked over at my husband and I was like, Whoa, he's like, I felt that too. Mm. I'm like, that had like real feeling whether they actually penetrated each other. It was irrelevant. The energy behind it mm. was like so intense that it was believable. Mm. That to me is way more sexy than watching like anal penetration. Cause you could it's like, everybody's doing that, but who's actually putting yes. energy 
behind it that has it feel alive. Mm. That's what I would want to consult on. It doesn't matter to me what your body looks like. I would want the aliveness. Mm. I agree with you. I think that that level of passion is the interesting part because I think that's where, especially for someone who is spiritual, I think that's where the intersection lies, where it's like, oh, where where am I being seen? Where am I being evoked? Where am I being nourished? And I think that part is far more fascinating than what's what's available with porn. I also think porn doesn't give you the story, which is one of the things I've seen with BDSM that like, and my introduction to it, it's been about consensuality, which is super important. So it's two people having a conversation, not just to see if they're like kinks align, but to see, do they align fundamentally at their core? Do things work? Or do I feel safe? Am I okay to be vulnerable with this person? Can I completely trust? I think that there's so much beauty in that. And what I'm seeing in porn is that that piece is also missing is like, oh, well, I don't see the, I don't see the communication that helps build the foundation to make this exciting and pleasurable, nor do I see the aftercare of like where you have people being really gentle and being really sweet and actually talking about what just happened. And I think sex in general, regardless of what culture you belong to, I don't know how much it celebrates the communication as opposed to the act. Whereas for me, I think the communication is even more important than the act because that ability to feel safe, that ability to feel like there is a give and take, that ability to, to I think, also have vernacular to give shape to what your desire is, is super, super powerful. And it's something that I don't, I don't really see in porn, but I see in other places like literature or erotica, for example. I think we're going to talk about erotica next, but first we're okay. going to head to our commercial break. I want to talk about erotica because yeah. you are born into a culture that has one of the sexiest erotica <laughs> literatures in the world. So <laughs> we'll talk about that. So um, you're listening to The Pleasure Zone here on Inspired Choices Network, and we'll be right back after this commercial. Are you secretly a voyeur, wondering what's going on in other people's sex lives? What if now is the time for a totally different sexual evolution. Are you interested in people who are pioneers of different sexual and pleasurable practices? Lean in now with Melitza Yelenich, where she will entice you and your body to know your own pleasure zone. On the Pleasure Zone radio show with sensual movement artist Melitza Yelenich, you'll receive tools, inspiration, and a foundation to allow yourself to receive more in your sex life and quite possibly other areas of your life as well. Listen for The Pleasure Zone with Milica every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 7 p.m. Central Time, 6 p.m. Mountain Time, and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on InspiredChoicesNetwork.com. Are you a subject matter expert? Are you here to share your expertise with an audience waiting to hear from you in only the way you can deliver? Are you ready to have your voice amplified across the airwaves? Inspired Choices Network has a global radio platform streaming to millions of people across the world. Professionally produced and supported by an accomplished team every step of the way, you can broadcast from anywhere in the world knowing your voice matters and we ensure it is delivered with ease and efficiency. Eager to hear your message, the world awaits. Contact us today to become an Inspired Choices Network radio host. Email become a host at inspiredchoicesnetwork.com. This is the Pleasure Zone with sensual movement artist Melitza Yelenich. To participate in the program today, join our live studio audience in our chat room at inspiredchoicesnetwork.com. 
You can also make the choice to ask or comment by email. Info at MelitzaYelenich.com. Now, back to the program. Well, welcome back, my sweet, sweet pleasure seekers. <laughs> Tonight, we are talking about, we're actually talking to my friend Farah, who is a South Asian woman who is giving us her perspective on what it was like to grow up in her culture and religion and how that, uh, it, it kind of, um, what's the word for it? it? It's like it formed some of your, well, definitely formed your life, but it also formed the way that, formulated the way that you see uh, sex and sensuality mm -hmm. and, and as all cultures will, but I don't, I didn't live your experience. So I don't have, I don't have a lot of firsthand information, maybe from other lifetimes, but I can't tap that right now. So I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation because a lot of, um, a lot of my listeners actually in my very first year were women writing to me from India, thanking me, India and Bangladesh and Pakistan. And they mm -hmm. were writing to me, thanking me for their, for the show. First, what I was amazed at was that the, um, that the internet was allowing them to get me because uh, oh. I thought there would be restrictions. Like I didn't mm -hmm. think they'd be able to download the show or to watch it or to listen to it. So that I was impressed with that they were actually able to receive the show. And about a year into my show, I'd been watching uh, like a special on Netflix, I think mm -hmm. it was a documentary and it was talking about different sexual experiences around the world. And they went to Asian countries. They went to, I think they went to parts of Africa, like Kenya and um, mm. what is, is Zimbabwe Zimbabwe now or is Zimbabwe, oh, Zimbabwe was Rhodesia before Rhodesia. and now Zimbabwe. Yeah, I don't know why I flipped that around okay. all the time. So <laughs> was Rhodesia now Zimbabwe, but they were talking about these different countries where um, they're having radio shows about sex and how it's like really obscure and mm. and people are fascinated by it but also it's sort of on the edge of illegal to even listen to this stuff mm. so i was like amazed that my show was allowed to be heard especially that i was you know giving kind of like almost instructionals on how to give a blow job or yeah. how to do different things so i was kind of surprised that i had uh, following which was amazing it was amazing and beautiful and there was so much gratitude mm. like thank you so much for talking about this it was like a source of education which was also a really great prompt to keep going because I thought wow mm. if there are women in the world who are my age and older and have don't have this like basic education yeah. that really made me mad actually mm. I was like are you fucking kidding me that we are not educating people and I don't have that reality right I grew up in North America um, I had access to Sunday night sex show with Sue, which I learned a lot from because mm. I love Sue. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't um, have those restrictions on me, even though culturally they were kind of there. I didn't, uh, I wasn't around my dad 24 seven. He was like my part-time dad. So I saw him every mm. second weekend. So I didn't have a major influence from him or his culture. I had a lot of access to things if I wanted it. And it surprised me that now in this day and age that there's still such a lack of access of information, even just basic information about yeah. this is how your body functions. Yeah. So the shame, I'd like to talk about the shame piece because I think sure. that was interesting when you brought that up to me when we were first talking about the possibility of this show and you were mentioning about 
the shame um, that you mm. that you felt was kind of the air going on in your culture or at least in your home yeah I think it's for me like my, my background is South Asian of course but we're, we're Shia Muslim as well which I think added a particular dynamic in terms of the ability to talk about sex and the interpret the branch of interpretation that I belong to and Shia Islam is known as Ismaili and we're a super small community there's not there's not very many of us in the sense that uh, like Sunni people who adhere to the Sunni interpretation is much more of them and so I think because the community is so close-knit especially within South Asian spaces I would say regardless of if you're Muslim or not if you're South Asian I would argue Bengali Pakistani Indian you are raised to care about what other people think about you like what you do what you wear how conservative you are I think if you're a woman based on how like docile and submissive you are how well you can adhere to the needs of the man like I think about my own life and like men always sat at the table, my mother and like her sisters or the other women never had a place at the head table with the exception of my grandmother. Um, and so I think when you're brought up culturally and you're conditioned socially to adhere to more submissive roles and you're also brought up, I would argue in an environment where the language around sex, let alone language around genitalia and like consent and sexual health are not talked about and they're very taboo. Imagine then becoming a young adult South Asian woman who's beginning to explore sexuality and you don't even have the vernacular to talk about it because there's so much shame and so much stigma in addition to a limitation of language. So I'll give you an example. Like I never knew what the Gujarati word it was for vagina until I looked it up today and it, it said yoni is what I got. And so when I think of- That's wild. Isn't it wild? And so when I think of yoni, I think, oh, when I talk to people that do like yoni meditations or yoni workshops, it's it's rooted in this like, yeah and but it's also it's quite strong and it's quite like you know it's potent and people are present and there's more celebration around the curiosity and exploration of the yoni and when it's mm. talked about that way when I think about it in in my home like I think about you know my grandmother used to refer to it as chichi which literally means pee it doesn't actually mean really? vagina. yeah wow. and so and so I think like, you know, part of it is maybe it was lost in translation maybe maybe she did use it and I don't remember it and but the part that does stick out to me is like, if you're talking about your genitalia and it's always it's always accompanied by words that are shameful, like pee or things that are dirty. Imagine like how is that going to condition you and your ability to be able to vocalize it later in life? Or if you're someone who's survived trauma, as an example, like if you don't even have autonomy over those parts of your body, how the hell are you gonna talk about them? Yeah. And Were so I think talking about the the fact that in some cultures there isn't even like words for like yes. different abuses yeah. yeah I wasn't sure if it was us or somebody else yeah. we know yeah. <laughs> so. there is there isn't even words and I, I think a lot of it is normalized like over like rape is the fourth highest crime in India as an example and over 80 percent of or 80 percent of people who are rapers are immediate family members so family like fathers grandfathers and brothers and there's a countless articles that I think talk about police indifference around rape and sexual abuse as it pertains to, to women. And domestic violence in India is also pretty high. 60% of women experience domestic violence, whether it's um, psychological, verbal, financial, physical, sexual. So I think, I think there's so much shame around it because there's too much of the, the crappy part of it that's been normalized. Mm -hmm. And there's not been enough conversations around how to educate our men to communicate not only their own desires, but to actually form equal partnerships with the people that they choose to marry. And I think that's part of what 
fuels issues around shame for sex is like the community aspect of it, the religious aspect of it, the conditioning of the partners that we choose, the conditioning of, of the other women that we interact with. Um, I don't know if I, I told you this when we met, but when I was thinking about doing my own work around, around the South Asian sexual experience, I had canvassed like 20 South Asian women in my life just to get like their sense, like, what do you think of it? Different age categories, some were moms, some are single. And the two people that I spoke to most openly about it, actually the three people, two of them were, were my best friends, um, Farzana and Malika. And we could have really open conversations about like toys, BDSM, role play, like all, there, there wasn't shame around it. It was, we're exploring and we're curious. And there was this, this band of women that we can talk to about it. But the other women that I spoke to, like my older cousins or friends of mine that are a few years older than me, were super excited to support the vision that I had, but they were very resistant around giving shape to their experiences, let alone giving shape to their own curiosity around sex. And a lot of it was rooted in, oh, but I'm a mom, what are, what are people going to say? Or like, I don't want to use my name, or like, I'm reluctant because if you're putting in this detail, people might deduce that it's me. And that for me was like, why is, why does that exist? Like, why is it that as women we're told that we're allowed to be strong and powerful and intellectual in the, in work life, but we can't bring those same attributes to sex and we can't bring those same attributes to our romantic relationships. And so I think shame in terms of what I've seen in my environment has really repressed people's ability to celebrate their body. And as a result, there's an inability to speak about it, let alone being open to explore what is even available for them. Yeah, and that absolutely. to me, I think is like super sad that we feel like we're not able, like it, it's almost, it's, it's a restriction of, of freedom. And I think in some capacity that you're not really able to, to do those things or talk about them without feeling uncomfortable. And like, you know, I, I think that the, that the discomfort has something to say about our own ability to grow and evolve, but also it's, it's a good checkpoint of like, why am I being resistant towards this? Like, what's the real issue? Is it that I don't feel sexy? Is it that I've been conditioned to think of myself that way? Is it that it's easier to be in this more docile submissive space because it's normalized for me and so therefore there's comfort in it? I don't know, I, there are things that kind of flow through me but there are things that I've seen manifest through shame. So I have a question about the, the, more, uh, the more passive docile role that's kind of the expected role yeah. and how does that because we've kind of talked a little bit about BDSM and and the curiosity you have around that and mm -hmm. I'm just really curious that so if you're growing up in a culture where women are kind of taught to be docile and frankly actually on my European side my father's side that's actually an expectation mm. to be you're going to be the this woman who's going to do whatever your husband tells you to do yeah um that still persists today mm. and um it's interesting to me from my experience that made me actually feel at first very reluctant to anything bdsm it's like there's no yeah. way this is this is the one place i'm going to be empowered i'm going to be the dom and there's no way i'm going to submit ever mm. right there was like a total F you on that front. Mm. So I'm wondering what was it? Is it, was it a personal thing with your partner that had you feel safety? Like what was it that brought it to be? Cause when I look at you, I look at a woman who would also be that fiery warrior. Like there's no <laughs> way I'm getting taken down <laughs> ever. I will slap your ass, but not the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
So what had you go, oh, now, you know what, maybe it's not as bad as I thought. Yeah, uh, we have kind eyes to see me that way. So thank you. Um, but as for me, I think it's so, okay, I'm going to rewind a bit. When I was younger, I used to be as my siblings would put quite angry but I think I saw so much injustice I grew up with so much narcissism and and so many people who didn't have the ability to communicate so then it just turned into arguments that I know that I was lucky enough that through that anger I was able to speak truth to power so I never had an issue telling my dad to to f off and maybe part of that is because I had the safety of I always knew my siblings would pick me over my parents so it's like oh I'm the youngest I can get away with it people are going to have my back no matter what and so the positive side of that was that I, I had happened to have three siblings that always had my back and always chose me over my parents. In terms of the exploration now, it a huge part of it is my boyfriend. It's 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 that I'm with somebody who is so incredibly compassionate and patient and open-minded and someone who himself has done the work. Like he has sat in his trauma, he has given his pain shape, he has broken that crap down. He knows what he needs in order to stay afloat and to stay and to thrive in the environment he's built for himself. And so part of the exploration for BDSM was I happen to have a boyfriend who's really freaking awesome and feels like home. And in that there's so much safety. And for someone like me who grew up with, you know, with with addiction and all kinds of stuff in my in, in my home life, safety is something I've always craved. I never really had a lot of it. And so I think having it with someone is super cool. And then exploring it through BDSM, I thought, what a beautiful way to honor your relationship, to have complete trust that this person is not only going to deliver on like what your own desires are and what you need to feel nourished, but that they're doing it in a space that you have built together, that you have talked about what works for you and what doesn't, that you created a space where you can openly communicate uh, and explore through like a through a bunch of different things whether you're incorporating toys or it's blindfolds or whatever so I, a big part of it for me was yeah I just happened to have a boyfriend who's really awesome and really open-minded that's really cool yeah and and as in your your bio you mentioned that you're in a biracial relationship which mm -hmm. is is uh even that to me is kind of a cool thing to state it's like <laughs> this is not something that I ever like think about like saying like hey by the way this is my um you know but I think that's kind of cool in some way to me when you stated that it's like yeah so not only am I empowered South Asian woman I also chose and I'm guessing white boy um, I chose a white boy black boy black boy okay yes. that's really funny because I like assumed white boy oh, okay. <laughs> that's my judgment but I think that's really cool that you uh, you're like I'm just gonna I'm just gonna choose something outside of my culture to really well you're choosing the person based on the person that happens to be outside of what your cultural yes. norm would be um, just because why not you're somebody who's looking for healing so let's go for the gold and let's bring all the judgments up into your face yeah and deal with all of them at once yes. right yep 100 percent. that is really funny I don't know why when I read, you know what, that is such an interesting judgment on my part that when I read biracial, I assumed white. Like I, well, really I was going to say, maybe it's something that you've seen. Cause I do think like, even if I think of Mindy Kaling, for example, or like, like Padma Lakshmi, Jamila Jamil, like these are all Priyanka Chopra. They're all in the, in the media culture, but Mindy Kaling is I think a huge person in the Hollywood media culture and often her love interests are white. So I think it's, it's not a, 
not an abnormal thing, I, I, I think, to, to think because there's so there's so little representation, but it happens that what is there is often associated with white men. Yeah, true that. So isn't that fascinating? Is it? Yes. Because I, I never um, I never really even considered like, I, I don't really think about it. Right. So when I read it, that was my. And so I'm wondering how many of us have that, too, like in our minds that we're just sitting around making assumptions about different cultures. Well, if it's this, then it's this, and this is what it's going to look like. So uh, for all of us who are uh, judgy as fuck, let's just let that stuff go. And like, we'll yeah. just- Just be open to- what Just like, ju let those judgments go, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I think the cool thing is, is when you can identify that you're being judgy as fuck and you're like, wow, that was judgy as fuck what I just yeah, did. I'm going to check that. It's a sign. It's a, it's a good sign of evolution, I think. So <laughs> That's, yeah, I, that I like to hope so. Cause um, I know too, that, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in the spring where people were trying to, you know, there's, there's Black Lives Matter and there was a lot of white people going, I identify, you can't, and to me, okay, I may be judging on this, but I'm like, you cannot fucking identify it because you're not black. Yeah. <laughs> so that was my interesting point of view. <laughs> but, like maybe you can, because you've had many lifetimes, but you're telling me you're aware of all of them. I really doubt it. I do, yeah, <laughs> I think I think that's true of, of of anyone who maybe is isn't black. I think we we've all had we've all benefited from a certain type of privilege that that community doesn't have, and so it's it's hard to sometimes see it. But you know, I always think being changing your mind is one of the biggest signs of growth. You don't have we we don't always have to stay in what we think our truth is. It's it's good, you know, if if their truth is that they're able to empathize. That's better than those that feel like they can't, I think. Because it, sh it shouldn't just be up to the oppressed to fight for the oppressed. Everybody should be fighting for it. Yeah. I have to say that um, also until, so I met my friend Yaz about 10 years ago. And um, this is a weird thing to say, but she was truly my first Muslim friend. Mm. I In my life, I had actually grown up in, so I grew up with, um, a Christian Orthodox father who who kind of brainwashed me to believe Muslims were bad. Mm. Uh, in fact, trained to believe that because of the war going on in the former Yugoslavia. I there see. was all this stuff going on, right? So there was a lot of brainwashing. I knew it wasn't true, but at the same time, I had not actually in my life been in a space that I was even introduced to somebody who wasn't, um, who was Muslim. I mm. just wasn't. And that to me now in my reality is so weird because now I feel like I'm, I feel like I should probably have a bayat and become like, I'm not really sure. I can up everywhere you go. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I think I'm so in the culture, but it's, it's really we'll funny. It makes space for you. Yeah. So it's, uh, I find it fascinating because I know what my judgment was before meeting her mm. was I thought, I really thought Muslim women all wear jobs yeah I think I think mo most people do I still get that I'm like oh you're Muslim but you don't look Muslim which is really a subtle way of saying like oh you're not wearing a headset yeah. that visibly indicates that you're Muslim yeah and and so with that assumption I also had the assumption Muslim women are all sexually repressed yeah like I had that definition full-on and it really 
Cook, I think, talking on this show and having women from different cultures write to me and say, like, identify with what you're saying. I'm like, mm. oh, I'm so surprised you can identify with what I'm saying, because don't you come from a super repressed society that wouldn't allow you to even think that? So that that actually surprised me a lot when um when I had that feedback, I was mm. surprised because I was just starting to under, like just kind of starting to understand that, wait, maybe this, this a culture isn't the most repressed culture in the world. Mm. Um, and in fact, we were going to talk a little bit about erotica, which we still will, we're going to go to a break. But um, when I found out about the perfume garden, I was like, yes. what? <laughs> How was I missing out on this for so long? <laughs> So I want to talk about some classics of erotica and some other erotica you've been reading that you feel that maybe our South Asian listeners, Asian listeners, um, women that aren't white (laughs) can be like, go, oh, wow, I can identify with some of these characters and these, some of these cultural references will, will work with me and I can get turned on by this. So we'll talk about that after the next commercial. So you're listening to The Pleasure Zone here on Inspired Choices Network, and we'll be right back after this commercial. Are you secretly a voyeur, wondering what's going on in other people's sex lives? What if now is the time for a totally different sexual evolution? Are you interested in people who are pioneers of different sexual and pleasurable practices? Lean in now with Melitza Yelenich, where she will entice you and your body to know your own pleasure zone. On the Pleasure Zone radio show with sensual movement artist Melitza Yelenich, you'll receive tools, inspiration, and a foundation to allow yourself to receive more in your sex life, and quite possibly other areas of your life as well. Listen for the Pleasure Zone with Melitza every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 7 p.m. Central Time, 6 p.m. Mountain Time, and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on InspiredChoicesNetwork.com. Interested in masturbating for money, copulating for consciousness, and pleasuring on purpose? 21 Days of Sexual Magicism with sensual movement artist Melitza Yelenich is an exploration of tools, processes, and actions that you can use to create more for your life, your body, your money inflows, and so much more. Graduated learning for all levels of interest. Learn at your own pace via video classes or join the yearly live class. Take a peek at www.melitzayelenich.com. This is The Pleasure Zone with sensual movement artist Melitza Yelenich. To participate in the program today, join our live studio audience in our chat room at inspiredchoicesnetwork.com. You can also make the choice to ask or comment by email info at melitzayelenich.com. Now, back to the program. Well, that was a fun and interesting break. And I like how it came out of surprise and then it ended out of surprise and there was a little stunning break in the middle. It was fun. (laughs) (laughs) I I like when things are not always as they appear to be, which is actually what this show is pretty much about. It's not always what we think it appears to be, right? I, I always had the curiosity of like, what if the world and everybody on the world was blind and we had no idea about color? Like that always mm. was that question in my universe of how would we actually react to people? And, and I've had some people say, you know what, we're such judgmental apps that we would judge them based on the tone of their voice. 
That's true. Or the smell of their clothes or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, you're actually right because we are that judgmental. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there are ways that we can change that though, for sure. And, um, you know, some of the easiest ways is having conversations and listening, I think is, mm. is one of the easiest ways. And checking yourself. Yeah. As you guys just witnessed me checking myself, but check yourself. Like, where are you being a judgmental F and just check it out and go like, wow, I just assumed wherever you were like, I just assumed you're being a judgmental F just so you know. <laughs> so. But it was good. It was, it, it was, it was a good check. I think it's, it's important to have those moments. Yeah, we all, we definitely, I'm we sure. I don't know of a person who hasn't had those moments. So yeah. it's cool to have those, those yeah, uh, yeah. check-ins. It's, funny like my daughter actually has a Hebrew name and so many people are like so you're Jewish I'm like no I'm not Jewish yeah. does it matter if I am like yeah. like oh because your daughter's name and the body work you do I'm, yeah yeah the body work's called mitzvah it's a Jewish yeah. word my daughter's mm-hmm. name is Ziva which is a Jewish word for splendor I like these words yeah <laughs> so, they have cool meaning for me they have and cool they, meaning and be just that yeah yeah so you know, it's funny because I've been on that of strange receiving end of that. Mm. And it's it's funny to receive it when people are like offended when I'm not Jewish. They're like, but you're not Jewish. How can yeah. you using these words? And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. You just were, used the word ice cream. Should I be offended that yeah. you use my whitey English like ancestors word for ice cream? Yes. Like, I'm not sure. Should I be offended? <laughs> so. I think people have a hard time with placement. Like I see it a lot in conversations with my queer friends of like, oh, if you're fluid or you're someone who's bisexual, like people love love to label because it helps them situate you. Mm. But it's like your discomfort of knowing where to place me is not my problem. So I know that's funny. It's weird. I think the labels are interesting. I I had a conversation uh, recently with somebody about the the whole concept of all of all of these labels that we're using. Mm. I read somewhere that in New York, there are over 50 gender identifications or sexual orientation gentrifications, like the way um, between gender and sexual orientation, there are over 50 in New York. Okay. Wow. Uh, I don't even know what they all are. And I thought that is fascinating. And at the same time, isn't that creating separation? Mm. Or if we're looking at like a human centric experience, do we need those labels or can people just be themselves? And, and you show up as you and you don't have to label. But then I got really good feedback on that, which was, um, it was interesting because it's from somebody who's like a colonialization expert. And she's like, well, when cultures have been colonialized, what occurs is that at first the people need to feel like, and I, I might be misquoting her a little bit, but she was saying that it has a lot to do with like feeling a sense of safety and security. So you need to kind of identify with your group so that you feel like the safety in numbers kind of concept. So sometimes those labels are needed so that you have community. Um, community, yeah. Sure. And then maybe through time, we become a world community, but I hope to see that in my lifetime. Mm, me too. It would be nice to see that. Yeah. The powers of inequity, who knows? Yeah. And you studied inequity, so <laughs> you would know a lot about that. In your studies on that, like, did you actually do any uh, studies on inequity uh, when it comes to, well, you were mentioning like the porn representation, but did you actually study any of that or that just became an interest later on? I think the inequity has always been something that's 
been rooted in my work. I think I saw it a lot in fashion when I used to work in fashion, for sure, in terms of how women were treated. Um, and then in equity, I mean, you see it in class in terms of statistics, how many women of a particular culture are represented in academia, as an example. I mean, you know, Asian, South Asian women are wildly underrepresented in academia. Uh, and then if you look at, so like my background looks at cross-cultural teaching experiences. And so how many of, how many teachers are white that go to different countries and are not able to have the, we call it intercultural competency. They're not able to really contextualize where they're working and then be able to do something sustainable for beyond when they leave. So I do see it in schooling and, but it's more so seen through the lens of education in terms of accessibility and what types of people have the privileged position finance and clout to be able to go abroad and do certain things versus those who don't and what ideologies are celebrated, which ones aren't. So that, that's kind of how we address equity in, in the Oise world. <laughs> oh, that's, it, that's interesting to me because I thought we were having more and more um, like students from other countries coming into Canada, but I guess they're, they're even still not being, like the women still aren't being represented in those cultures. I guess you would maybe you would educate your son, but not your daughter. Yeah, and I also think that there's there's underrepresentation in the economy as a result of that. So even though people are getting educated, that doesn't mean that the opportunities exist for them to work. In which case, that impacts agency, right? So, for example, like in India, sixty percent of women have graduate degrees, yet they're not supporting the economy because there's a cultural stigma of oh, I don't I don't work, my I stay home and raise my children and they're more seen for their domestic value. I mean, which is also a full-time job. Um, this unpaid labor market is massive, mm -hmm. but in terms of, you know, they don't have agency to create their own income. In which case, how, what role does that play in, in intimate relationships? And so I see more of that in the South Asian space of highly educated women who are not supporting the economy because they are in relationships or come from family dynamics that normalize them not working and normalize them being stay-at-home moms. Are the jobs available though? Like, are the jobs even there or are they just basically jobs that are only available to men? Like, would they hire women, for example, or is it a culture where they would just brush the women aside? It's a good question. I think that some of it is changing now. I don't know how much in countries like Pakistan because there's, it's governed by Islamic laws. So I'm not mm -hmm. sure the implications there, but in Bangladesh, for sure, I've seen an increase of like women being hired to be teachers because that's one of the most mm -hmm. common degrees you can have. And in India, a lot of it is vocational skills. So you have a lot of women who are aestheticians, but not working. Okay. So I think that there is, I would argue that there definitely is space in the economy for them. Uh, I just don't know. I don't know how easy it would be for them to, to access those, even though even though the space is there. I'm curious about the women teaching in Bangladesh. Uh, I actually have a friend who is a co-founder of an organization called Amarok, who teaches women to teach children oh, great. Um, in Bangladesh. That's mostly where they've done their work. And um, I've never asked her this, but I actually wonder, are they teaching children about their bodies, about health, about sexuality? Are these conversations allowed? Or is it like, here's your ABCs and go off with you now? Mm. But In Bangladesh, you know, the I think the, part of the challenge with South Asia is that it houses so many people and at least in India, for example, like every 200 kilometers or 200 meters, maybe even, not meters, kilometers, there's a change in language and change in food and change in, mm -hmm. right? So I think that from my work in international development, a lot of conversations around 
safety and sex and how even hygiene, like how to use a pad, how to use a tampon are done so by nonprofit organizations are not so done by the school. So there's normally not like a health teacher that specializes in that. So they'll bring in expats to come and fill that gap. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So there's not, I don't, I would say that even at the very basic level of like how to deal with when you menstruate, that is still missing in a lot of cultures. Yeah. I remember there was a documentary called period end of sentence. And they talked about that in there and the judgment of, um, I believe that was in India and Mm -hmm. the women were getting uh, machines so they could make their own pads and create like Mm -hmm. a little business around it was actually a documentary that that won an award I think it won like uh, an Oscar or something uh, a year or two ago and uh, the conversation with the the young guys they were actually asking young men what do they think of women when they have periods and they were like vilely disgusted by it yeah and the women were so part of it was because women's education ends um, because they have their period because they don't have the means to be able to take care of themselves or they're finding scrap material in dumps to be able to wear that as pads. And then there's hygiene issues and there's shame issues and there's stuff around them being um, dirty or there's another word for it. It's, it's like, uh, it's like they're creating an, un, it's almost like, it's like they're defiling the space or something. I can't remember the word for it, but it's, it's something to do with like, it's, you've just made the space like dirty as well. Mm. So they were really discouraged from going to school, but this whole concept of giving women pads actually creates education. Like they can now go to yeah. school. Something we don't think about on the side of the planet, right? And like, we're just, we're just not there. That something that simple can be so empowering. And then if you actually knew the name, like, hey, you have a yoni and they're like, oh, wow, that's what that is. That's what that is. It's not yeah. the vile, disgusting, rotting thing that everybody's telling me that it yes. is. Yes. And that's the thing. There's too many other people dictating this is what your relationship with your body should be. It's almost, I would say in South Asian culture, there, there's a dominion of body ownership of like, oh, you should dress this way because you'll be perceived this way. Yeah. Oh, you should be hygienic because you're perceived this way. And even through religion, there's so many things that women can't do if they're on their period. We have that in my father's religion as well. So, ah, interesting. yeah, so Orthodox women, Christian Orthodox, you, you can't go and take the, the, um, the sacrament, like you can't have the blood and uh, the blood of Christ. Yes. <laughs> but you it's can't have that. Yeah, because you're menstruating. So you're going to make it dirty and dirty. awful and take away the sacredness of it. Mm. It's an interesting conversation. I want to thank you, Farah, for coming on of and, and like having me. being the okay. face and the voice uh, for South Asian women. I'm, I really was excited to talk to you because I know that part of your targets in life is to be able to do some coaching and uh, therapy with women in the future. And that's part of what you're working towards. And yes. so, so now in the future, whoever's listening now and in the future, get yourself ready to be able to yes. connect with Farah. Come find so me. That, yeah, yes. come find her so come that you me. can you know, find a sister that can actually relate to you and your experiences and maybe some of the stuff you've gone through. Cause I think it's amazing. I was so excited when she said that. I was like, do you know how many more Asians we need? We need more. Thank you for listening well, to for The Pleasure me. Zone with sensual movement artist, Milica Jelenic. The Pleasure Zone returns next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Mountain and 5 p.m. Pacific on inspiredchoicesnetwork.com. We hope you'll join us. Until then, have the best week of your life by choosing to be turned on and tuned in to your body.